0: by visiting enterpriseinspace.org.
1: This is Walter Koenig, check off from Star Trek and you're
0: listening to Trek FM
1: Open your mind to the past and oh, all this may mean something
0: It's a primitive culture I'm just trying to blend in Some people think the future means the end of history
1: We haven't run out of history quite yet.
0: Welcome, everyone, to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I am Tony Black, as ever, one of your hosts, and I'm joined, as ever, by my co-host tonight, Duncan Barrett. Hi, Tony. Hi, Duncan. We have chosen to do a special episode for this one. Quite a, I guess, quite sombre special episode, a supplemental early on in our our run that we've inserted to discuss a topic which is a broad one within Star Trek, but has a real life relevance, as in the last, just over a week from the point uh, you'll be listening to this, were the uh, bombings at Manchester Arena in the United Kingdom, the result of yet another act of terrorism on the UK, and obviously which we've seen in the United States and other countries around the world. And we thought that there was... We were already planning an episode to discuss the nature of modern terrorism in relation to Star Trek, and we thought this might be a, an opportune time to bring that discussion forward a little bit and talk about these issues in a as sensitive a way as we possibly can. But I think we're at a point, and we, we were talking about this earlier, Duncan, weren't we? I think we're at a point where we kind of need to talk about this don't we?
1: Yeah well I think both of us um, you know after we got the news on was it Tuesday morning this week I think that uh, about the bombing we you know we were messaging back and forth a bit about partly some of the coverage that we've been seeing because I mean I don't know about you my sort of feeling is um, I mean obviously it goes without saying this was a Truly awful thing that's happened—a terrible attack. But I was also sort of interested from, you you know, looking at these Star Trek episodes from a kind of cultural perspective, looking at how we try to make sense of terrorism, how we try to tell stories about terrorism. I was kind of struck by, you know, listening to the radio and TV coverage after the attacks that with all these attacks, and unfortunately they've become, you know, relatively frequent now. I mean, we had the the attack on Westminster Bridge only. probably a month ago or something like that, fairly fairly recently anyway, you always get the same responses. that People have these kind of um, sort of knee-jerk responses that they trot out. And and I don't don't necessarily mean that they're bad responses, but I think there's an element of we go into kind of autopilot when we try to talk about these things, maybe because they're very difficult to talk about. We don't know what to say. You know, we feel like we have to say something, but we're not quite sure what the right thing is to say. But it just made me sort of question some of the kind of... um, Ideas that that I was hearing coming out that you know I've I've heard every time there's one of these terrorist attacks and I just sort of wonder are we just kind of repeating the same ideas without really thinking much about them? So it sort of made me think maybe this was the time when we should, you know, try and have this conversation when it's kind of um, has that kind of freshness and that relevance to the kind of conversations that people are unfortunately having in their in their ordinary lives.
0: Well, it's a conversation that I think people have been having significantly since. Well, since 9-11, really, which is now obviously 16 years ago, the uh, attack on the World Trade Center in New York. And I think terrorism, of course, existed before then, but I think it's, it's been amplified in the last, getting on for 20 years, really, and the responses that governments have had, that people have had, the fear of what terrorism has become. And I think what we wanted to talk about in this episode, and as I say, we did already have this episode roughly planned. We, we were going to do this relatively soon. It was one of the early ideas uh, in primitive culture that we wanted to explore, which is how does Star Trek deal with terrorism in a world and a future which seemingly has gotten past these issues, you know, and the nature of what exactly terrorism is. How can we look to Star Trek and how can we see terrorism reflected in some of those stories and how do we see it change? And how do we see it evolve, unfortunately, alongside terrorism? And I think after Manchester, and obviously, as you mentioned, Westminster, it feels like so many people are having conversations. And as you say, people are going over the same kind of things. We're not, coming, we're not saying we're going to come up with the answer and to understand, because it's extremely complicated. But I think looking at some of these, these Star Trek stories, historically it gives different
1: kind of approaches and different viewpoints on what terrorism is, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And and also it gives us a sense of the way that our ideas about terrorism, I suppose, have changed over time as the kind of terrorism that we face has changed. I mean... You know, for both of us uh, being British, kind of growing up in the in the 80s and going into the 90s, you, you know, obviously for, for a long period, for people of our generation, particularly slightly older generations, terrorism was about Irish terrorism, it was about the IRA. And obviously, Star Trek dealt with that. And then later on, as you said, since nine eleven, I think things have changed and terrorism very much, you know, typically is, is Islamist terrorism. And it's quite a different breed of terrorism, I think, in a sense. I mean, I think possibly with the IRA, you know, whether you agreed with any of their goals or anything they wanted or or, or not, or, you you know, however you sort of felt on that spectrum, I suppose it was easy to understand what they wanted. Um, You you, you know, we did kind of understand what they, they had a clear sort of platform, in a sense, they had clear goals that were you know maybe not polit- you know politically you might say they weren't possible but they they were kind of comprehensible and they were they were understandable and i think one of the things with the more recent kind of terrorism since 9/11 is there is a real sort of confusion about what it's really about and this was what really struck me listening to the the coverage in the you know hours after we kind of learned of this latest attack was all these people, you know, speaking to what the terrorists want and telling people, well, you mustn't do this because that's what the terrorists want. You know, if you you cancel your plans because you you don't feel safe going to you know, a show the next week or whatever, you shouldn't do that because that's what the terrorists want. Or, you know, even we had uh, in the UK, um, Katie Hopkins tweeting these awful comments. uh, She called for a final solution to the problem, you know, basically kind of effectively advocating genocide in the sense. I mean, for the American listeners, if you don't know who Katie Hopkins is, she's the kind of British Milo, I suppose, a real uh, controversialist, really, and a pretty unpleasant character. You know, I would not at all defend what she was saying but at the same time there were all these people saying oh she's exactly what the terrorists want they you know they they want to stoke up those kind of attitudes they want to stoke up someone like her and i was just sort of thinking i'm not sure if that's true you know the people who are doing this you know these young men who are doing these awful things are they really thinking about katie hopkins and what kind of reaction she's going to have is that part of their plan or is it just that everything gets sort of subsumed into this kind of idea about, uh, well, the terrorists are thinking this way and, and, you know, we have to think this way. You know, even this um, the rhetoric that comes out time and again that they're cowards, well, I think that's a problematic thing to do. I mean, with this latest attack, you know, rightly, a lot of attention has been placed on the fact that the targets that they've chosen are, you know, even more shockingly than in, in past attacks. I mean, they're not even, you know, adults, they're not even people of our age, they're kids, essentially. They're deliberately targeting... Uh, children, particularly girls, essentially, um, in terms of the kind of demographic of the people at this concert. Um, and all these people were saying, oh, they're cowards because they're targeting little girls who can't defend themselves. Well, I think obviously it's, it's unspeakably horrific that they're targeting little girls, but I don't know that that's really about cowardice. I think it might be more honest to say that what people would use to say, they call them monsters, call it, you know, there's a kind of moral question there. It's not really about cowardice but again I think sort of saying that they're cowards is a way of kind of it's almost a kind of reassuring notion and I think in some ways all these ideas you know don't cancel your plans that's playing into what they want don't don't uh give publicity to this idea that's playing into what they want and so on I mean terrorism is is terrifying you know that's the reality of it and i think in some of these kind of knee-jerk reactions even the positive ones i mean the other thing i've seen a lot is this uh, quotation about looking for the helpers and obviously we've seen these quite inspiring stories of, of you know the taxi drivers offering free rides and the woman who was out all night helping these kids and so on and, and that's very important and that you, you know those are sort of small glimmers of, of hope in this awful situation but at the same time when people are telling you you know focus on this don't focus on that you know think about the positive don't focus on the negative I sort of feel like well actually you know something awful unspeakably awful has happened and people should be allowed to um, engage with that they shouldn't be told that they have to focus on something else
0: I think it's it's the need for people to create a narrative that makes sense it's the need for people to look at these events which seem to make no sense you know to, to the majority of of people trying to live their lives in a normal way a man going into the you know the train station after a, an Ariana Grande gig and blowing up 22 children or i know it wasn't entirely children but you you know p- complete innocence it makes no sense you know it absolutely makes no sense in terms of the way we view our our way of life and our morals and our values and you know the sanctity of human life so we need to try and put some kind of of structure into it of he must be a coward, or they must want this, or they. when the reality is we don't know. We don't know what these people want. We don't know what's going through their head. It could be different for every single one of them. There could be reasons that we can't even fathom. It could simply be, you know, I hate to trivialise, but it could simply be a bit like the Joker in The Dark Knight. They just want to see the world burn. It could simply be that kind of... that kind. Of, there might be no logical structure to it. And that's the scary part.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, the other thing is I sort of wonder, you know, on one level, are we trying to kind of rationalise something that is essentially quite an em- emotional thing, in a sense? I mean, we're trying... We're sort of ignoring the level of hatred. And, you know, I think I mentioned this back in our first episode, actually, when we were touching briefly on the, the Westminster attack. You know, that kind of feeling... And it's difficult. I've, I find it difficult, but... You know, the fact is, people like you and me, the people who commit these atrocities, they don't think we deserve to live. You know, it's not necessarily that... I don't think it's necessarily a case, as it might have been, you know, maybe in some of those Star Trek examples that we'll talk about and that people might have felt in the past of, you know, well, maybe the means justify the ends or whatever. I think there's a more kind of fundamental and more irrational element to it than that, possibly. And, you know, these attempts to kind of rationalise it are not always going to... To get at that, I was kind of struck, actually, by something that a lady that I interviewed for one of my books a few years ago said, and this was, uh, this was a, few, a few years ago, but this was a woman who, um, she'd grown up in London, uh, grown up in, in London in the Second World War. Uh, she'd lived through the Blitz. She'd been bombed out of her house several times. You know, she had friends who'd been killed in the war. And then she ended up going over to America because she married an American. And, uh, and she was, you know, she was in America for 9-11. And she actually, coincidentally, was back in London during the 7 7 attack. She'd gone to, um, she'd served in the ATS, the Women's Army during the war. And she'd gone to see the unveiling of a memorial to the women of the, of the women's forces, um, which I think was like the, it may even have been that day or the day before. So she was in London anyway. And so she was kind of caught up in some of the mayhem around those attacks. And I just thought it was interesting, her way of, of sort of comprehending it was quite different. She basically said, as far as she was concerned, it was the same thing. You know, she saw it, and I think this was partly coming from a kind of maybe a religious or a spiritual perspective, but she basically said she felt there was always evil in the world and it took different forms. And as far as she was concerned, you know, when she was a young woman, it was the Nazis and they fought to defeat that. And, and these days the evil has returned with a different, you know, sort of with a different face in a sense. So that was her way of looking at it, was in this kind of, um, I don't know how to describe that, but a very, a very different way from this kind of attempt to, to rationalise and, and and work out, a sort of mind game in a sense they want you to think this so you have to force yourself to think something else and it's all this kind of thing about you know it's all focused i suppose on the reaction isn't it it's it's all focused on how are you supposed to respond to this thing that's happened you know the goal is to terrify you or whatever so how are you going to not be terrified how are you going to prove that you know your way of life is unaffected and so on and, and you know i think it's a very difficult question i can understand why people say that they don't want to They they sort of feel with that kind of blitz spirit going back to the blitz I suppose that you know you carry on and you carry on with your life and so on but actually one of the more interesting discussions I heard on the radio in recent days was um it was a phone-in and and someone had phoned in and was very much saying this you know don't cancel your plans don't you you know carry on with life as usual and the host of the radio show was actually saying well I'm not I'm not going to tell people to do that you know I don't want the responsibility of telling people that they should do that if they feel they're at risk you know people can make their own decisions on something like that and that should be a kind of personal decision not something that's sort of imposed in a sense and, and i
0: suppose the the flip side of looking at that is by getting going on with life as normal by you know carrying on and, and as you say you know that level of spirit and we've seen that in manchester over the last few days you know a real coming together of the people in the city which is fantastic but at the same time does just getting on with everything and not letting in inverted commas not letting them win does it in some respect ignore the deeper reasons for why this has happened does it to an extent provide us with an excuse to while obviously we mourn while obviously you know we we consider everything by getting on with it are we trying to think okay we don't understand all we can do is carry on when there might be some some good and some logic in actually pausing and, and letting us properly have these conversations and thinking about it and trying to, and not listening to the rhetoric we hear in newspapers and not listening to some of the hardline right-wing propaganda that we hear, you know, on both sides of the pond these days when these things happen, but actually stopping and considering, can we try and figure out why this isn't this problem isn't going away, why it's getting worse, why it's magnifying, why we feel at risk, and why... And you know, and what can we do? What can we try and do as a society, as a collective global society, to to deal with this? And I think this is one of the reasons I think we wanted to do this this podcast because in Star Trek there are good examples of different kinds of terrorism that go into this kind of this kind of area. The first one was uh, you've briefly mentioned, you briefly touched on earlier when you mentioned the IRA, and the first one was the uh, the third season of the Next Generation episode, The High Ground. Which is in many respects a a, a a transfer of the idea of what the the IRA is, the Irish Republican Army. And in the higher ground, you have the enterprise going to a planet called Rutia 4, where the uh, the actual government have been in conflict with a a, a group of rebel separatists called the Ansata, led by um, quite a charismatic um, leader called Finn. And uh, the Ansata, uh, they're rebel separatists, and they want to have their voice heard and they've been fighting this pitch battle and they've they've been conducting terrorist attacks on the seemingly peaceful, the seemingly, you know, civilised society on this planet. And that, as an analogy for what the IRA were, is a very, very different kind of thing, isn't it, Duncan, from the kind of terrorism to an extent that we're experiencing and we've just experienced today.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I'd say, you know, the high ground. I, I mean, I think it's quite a good episode in a way. It's quite a measured episode. Um... It shows both sides of the coin. It kind of debates the issues in, in a kind of sort of traditional next generation way, in a sense. It, it kind of is you know going into the issues, taking it quite seriously. I mean, it's a serious topic, but and, and kind of trying to offer quite a, a, a measured way of looking at it. This episode was actually banned by the BBC for many years, and they always said, I don't know if this is true, not so much because of the kind of allegorical significance of the episode, but because of this uh, single line in it where Data says, he basically says, oh, well, you know, the IRA basically achieved what they wanted in, I think, 2024. 2024, yeah. You know, it's coming up pretty close now. (laughs) And obviously, you know, in the real world, uh, that situation has, you know, been resolved, you know, hopefully, or is, is, you know, on the the course to being resolved, at least, generally Mm. speaking, been resolved, you know, earlier than that and in quite a different way. But the way that data presents it is basically, well, they won, they got what they wanted. You know, by implication, well, he calls it the Irish reunification, doesn't he? So by implication they got the British out of Ireland, um, which is obviously not the the kind of more compromise-like solution that was kind of ultimately found in the real world. But so obviously it was a very topical issue at the time. I mean this episode was written in nineteen ninety. Uh it was written by Melinda Snodgrass, who also was behind uh, The Measure of a Man, another very interesting sort of serious thoughtful episode and one thing I was quite surprised by is actually originally apparently it wasn't going to be focusing or it wasn't going to be a kind of analog for the Irish situation it was going to be more about the American War of Independence and there are still some lines in there that kind of harken back to that conflict and to, the, to that relationship. And I suppose maybe there is a connection between those two things, because, you know, for y- you and me growing up in Britain, seeing things from a British perspective, you know, we've probably, you know, whatever our, our personal feelings might be about the complex issue of Northern Ireland, uh, we've certainly grown up in a, in a culture and with a kind of political environment where there's a position towards that issue that is very different to maybe what it might be in America. I mean, I know that a lot of Americans were more sympathetic to the uh, sort of Irish Republicans than and, you know, people in Britain were partly because I think they felt this sort of, that there was a similarity in the sense, you know, America had gained its independence from Britain in the past and there maybe was, they felt there was an element of, of that there. And also, you know, on the face of it, it's one of those situations where as difficult and complicated as it might be politically, you can kind of understand these are basically, you know, and in the episode, these are separatists, they're very clear what they want. They want autonomy, they want self-determination, they want all these things that in principle, you know, basically sound like a good thing. I mean, really, the issue in the episode is about, uh, it's not so much about their goals, which seem reasonable, it's about their methods and whether it's acceptable for them to use terrorist methods to try to get what they want and, you know, to try to Basically, the the man's uh, plan is to effectively draw the Federation into their conflict by attacking the Federation, by destroying the enterprise. And his, his idea is that then the Federation will be kind of implicated in this situation. And because they will be keen to find a diplomatic solution, they will kind of put pressure on them to get around the negotiation table. So it's very much a kind of means to an end. It's very much a kind of temporary situation he's not trying to annihilate the society or anything he wants to strengthen his hand so that he can go in and negotiate with them and hopefully get what he wants exactly and the
0: interesting thing you mentioned about how the ira which is the obviously the analog as we've said but you've mentioned how the ira is viewed differently i mean i i remember growing up in the 1980s and the 1990s when i was a child terrorism meant the ira it didn't mean anything else to me when I, I, that was the first understanding of what I knew from what, I'd been, from what I heard from my parents, from what I heard from the media, from what I read as a child. Terrorism was the IRA. And, I, and I, re, I remember, you know, I wasn't alive at the time, but in the city I live in, in Birmingham, in the UK, and it wasn't just in Birmingham this happened, but there was a, there was a series of horrendous bombings of quite often pubs, one in particular... Which killed a lot of people, and uh, a place called New Street, which is the main thoroughfare in Birmingham. Place I know extremely well. Place I've grown up. And it happened. I think it was in the seventies. There was a lot of this uh, separatist bombing, and there was a, something that quite chilled me to the bone. Was when my mother told me that the uh, the night this happened, she was meant to go to that pub, and uh, it was only because a friend of hers cancelled by some kind of serendipitous, you know, stroke of fate that she didn't go in the end, and. Obviously, I then turned around and said, "Well, there's a very good chance I may not have been born had you gone that night, because a lot of people died or people were maimed, and it was by the sound of it a horrendous, horrendous time." And there have been subsequent, you know, there's been a lot in the press about the Birmingham Six who were the bombers and things like like this and, and all kinds of things. So for me, there's a very personal connection, like a lot of people in the UK, the mainland UK, of at, at, at the IRA being a, a, a horrible force, of be, not being sympathetic whatsoever you know because what they did was try and kill us seemingly they were they were trying to kill us when the reality is they they were making they were making a very different point their 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 goals and their reasoning was about the reunification of their homeland but as a as a child and as a, a mainland englander frankly what do i care about that i I'm, I'm seeing people be bombed i'm seeing people be killed what for and that's and that's a really vivid kind of thing so the viewpoint that,
1: that's the other thing about terrorism it can be viewed very differently from very different places and very different perspectives it's interesting you say that because you see my sort of memory of the ira bombings and i mean i i do rem- i remember that bomb going off in canary wharf and that would be the sort of mid 90s i think and and that was quite a, a shocking situation you see my sort of feeling was like in the in the 90s around the sort of time this episode was going that was more typical in that you know, generally they would phone in warnings when these bombs were going to go off. And, and, you know, some people might be killed, but I suppose compared to, you know, say the kind of terrorism we have these days where the goal is, usually seems to be to kill as many people as possible, that certainly towards the end of that period, and and maybe that's because their kind of strategy changed or whatever, it seemed like they were, you know, they wanted to cause mayhem and destruction and to, and to scare people. You, you know, there was the kind of terror element. But actually they did take you know, some measures to limit the loss of human life to a certain extent. And 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 certainly, I don't want to get into defending the IRA. That's not, you know, really what I'm trying to do. <laughs> no. But 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 I suppose, I don't know, it does make me wonder, you know, that there are different kinds of terrorists. There are people who are doing things for different reasons. They have different goals. They probably have different feelings about what they're doing. You know, for some of them, they're probably uh, as in this episode of The Next Generation, you know, the guy is not Totally unfeeling. I mean, he he is kind of hardened to an extent. He's willing to do terrible things. I mean, w- when he finds out that because he he um has sort of kidnapped Beverly basically and is debating a lot of these issues with her, when he finds out that her son is on the Enterprise, he he says, "Oh, kind of what a shame." Basically, that I'm going to have to kill your son. You know, he, he's still going to do it, but he's kind of he's sort of basically says, "Oh, I wish I wish you hadn't told me that. I wish that didn't have to happen." So he's kind of convinced himself. That these appalling acts are justifiable, but at the same time only as a means to an end. You know, in the abstract, he does recognise that they're they're kind of awful on one level as well, which is very different, I think, from the situation of someone who just feels that they're kind of doing the right thing by killing people, and it's uh, you, you know different, in fact, from some of the other. Uh, later Star Trek episodes that we might look at which sort of tie into more the kind of terrorism that we've had I suppose since 9-11 the more kind of Islamist uh, uh, terrorism which often um, at least is represented as, as being more of a kind of attack on a way of life or a culture or a kind of a sort of ideological battle rather than a, a dispute over territory or over land, or you know these kind of traditional causes of conflict.
0: What the High Ground does, and and what we later see quite heavily, I think, in, in Deep Space Nine with the Bajoran issue, is this idea of there's the there's the saying isn't the one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So you know, in in the case of Finn for the high, from the High Ground, and you know, in the case of someone like Kira and Shakar and all of these people who fought in the Bajoran resistance and were bombing targets and things like this, Cardassian targets and, and stuff like that, they would be considered heroes for the Bajorans. They would be considered freedom fighters, resistance fighters and everything like that. But from a Cardassian point of view, they would have been terrorists. They would have been outlaw terrorists, bombing innocent civilians well, or, or mil- probably more military you know, installations and things like that, but they would still be killing people indiscriminately. So... A lot. Of, there's an interesting conversation to be had about the response, isn't there, as well, and and whether or not you consider, you know, a, a, a freedom fighter different from an actual terrorist. And Deep Space Nine gets into this in a, in a few interesting ways. I think. I mean, a good example that you brought up earlier when we were talking was Homefront and Paradise Lost, which is the season four two parter where Cisco goes back to Earth when he finds out there's a changeling Plot underway, and they're 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 having to basically declare martial law on Earth, and there's a there's you know there's an internal kind of staffly you know power grapple conspiracy going on there as well. But it is that you know the, the one thing Deep Space Nine does really well with the Changelings is that fear of the enemy within and not knowing who to trust and having to change your way of life. And you know, and we'd never seen Earth in that context in the Star Trek universe before Homefront. You know, seeing those the armed guys on the streets. You know, the the, the fear of of who who your neighbor is you know, and that kind of thing. And that's the kind of thing we get now in the response after a terror attack. You only have to look at the major cities in the UK now this week after Manchester. There are armed people on the streets. You know, there are there are police. There are There is a heightened response. It's like, as our prime minister did, heightened the, the, the critical, the, the level to critical. And that's effectively what they do in home front when, they, when they're when faced with this problem. So it's deep, deep Space Nine
1: before 9-11 does get into this, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Deep Space Nine, I suppose, is a very prescient, series in 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 many ways in relation to those kind of things and i think it's true you know we see i mean you know we don't thankfully have martial law in uh britain at the moment but it's true we do have the army uh taking over police roles you know and on the streets with guns and it's a difficult issue i suppose i mean it sort of goes back to what i was saying about you know what is the right response this kind of fixation on on our response how do we you know, what's the right balance between changing our way of life and, you know, potentially taking risks and so on. On the radio this morning, I heard an interview with David Blunkett, who was the former um, Home Secretary here, and he was talking about, uh, because they were debating this issue about soldiers on the streets, and he was saying there was a time when... um, I think around the time of the Iraq war after 9-11, there were concerns about potential missile attacks on planes leaving Heathrow Airport. And he said, basically, they, they decided to send in not just soldiers, but tanks to the airport. Now, I don't know what the tanks were actually going to do. I think it was a sort of probably a symbolic thing as much as anything else. But he said he was really angry about it. And, and he, he he even though he was Home Secretary, he couldn't actually... Command them to leave essentially, but he said he rang up and in very strong terms, he was basically saying, Look, you know, you're terrifying people even more than you know, than is appropriate in a sense. And and just you know, putting these vehicles there, it kind of sends a certain message. And it's it's the wrong, as far as he was concerned, it was the wrong kind of the wrong response. It was sort of deliberately provoking a reaction that was kind of the opposite of the you know, what he would see is the right way to proceed and obviously once you get in you know Homefront and paradise lost you also get into kind of restrictions on civil liberties you get you you know in a situation with martial law you have a curfew you have kind of there is a danger that you go down a road where you're kind of i suppose the free society that you're trying to protect becomes compromised by by taking those decisions i mean on the other hand i mean i don't know about you you know personally i know some people don't like having their bags searched or sort of feel affronted by extra security measures i usually feel quite reassured by those things i'd of be more worried if you you know if people don't seem to be interested in searching your bags or whatever i don't personally i don't see that as a kind of as sort of spoiling my way of life in some ways i i think i'm a bit more sort of pragmatic on that kind of thing but i do understand there's a continuum there's a kind of you know it's all about kind of what's proportionate what's appropriate And these things are very difficult to know. And, you know, the security services obviously know a lot more than we do and, you know, are involved in a lot of activities that we know nothing about in trying to prevent other attacks and so on. But, you know, they don't know everything and they get taken by surprise. And, you know, and they and the politicians and everyone is trying to sort of find a balance in a sense of, you know, trying to sort of preserve that way of life, but also trying to keep people safe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I find it interesting that, in the case of Homefront and Paradise Lost, that they got into this at the time they did. You know, I mean, this was 1997, 1996, 97. It, it, in, if you look at it in political terms and in sociological terms, it was quite a peaceful time, really. You know, we were between wars. We, it was pre-911. We we passed the first Iraq war. There was a fairly stable presidency in the US. There was new Labour that had just begun, you know, a seemingly bright and beautiful future for the UK. It didn't seem like a time where people were, you know, people were terrified, people were living in fear. So as you said, there's a certain prescience about Deep Space Nine in that it almost felt like that storyline was looking over the next hill because that is ex- exactly the kind of world that we start to see reflected in later Star Trek as we get past 2001 and we get into the world beyond 9-11, which obviously affected a great deal of, of, of television, you know, and, and you know, there were some, some really interesting ideas discussed in terms of... Obviously, you know, as I've mentioned a couple of times before, I do an X-Files podcast. <laughs> there's been an interesting point made on that of that the X-Files started to lose popularity after 9-11, because people didn't want to distrust their government anymore. And you had TV shows such as 24 or Alias where the American government were the good guys. And the 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 if there were conspirators or there were people, you know, working against them, it wasn't the Americans. It would be someone inside. It would be a Russian spy. It would be a, you know, that kind of thing. It would be Whereas the X-Files was all about your government not working in your best interest. And now it's interesting that show is now coming back and he's tapping back into that zeitgeist. But Star Trek almost seemed at that time to be operating in a different way and that he wanted to look at these issues through Enterprise, especially in more of a direct way. I mean, you only have to look at the Expanse, the season two finale of, of Enterprise, which is is the whole nine eleven thing pretty much straight on. It's, you know, the Zindi probe coming, killing, you know, obviously a lot more than the, the World Trade Center, about a, a multi, about 8 million people, I think it is, cutting a swath through the, the world, through the earth, killing Trip Tucker's sister, and leading the Enterprise on this, you know, the whole mission of the third series in what they go and do. But it's that idea of something completely out of the blue, killing mini, millions of innocent people and not being able to understand why, why this would happen. And that's exactly the... The response that people had after nine eleven, you know, even though there were a lot of political and things behind that, you know, the after the wars and you know the wars in the Middle East and these kind of things that had built up, you know, Osama bin Laden ordering that attack, there still was that complete shock, and I think that's very much reflected in the the path Enterprise goes down.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that that episode, The Expanse, does a very good job of conveying that kind of, not just the horror of what's happened, but the kind of confusion and the, you know, even with elements like the the count of people who've been killed keeps getting revised, which was exactly what happened on 9-11. You know, it keeps going up and up and up. But also there's this just bewilderment about it in a sense you know it's kind of incomprehensible why has it happened where has it come from and i think even it's actually trip who asks immediately they find out what's happened he says uh, you know did anyone say why And archer says oh I, I didn't think to ask actually and obviously you know eventually they sort of do find out there's a whole complex elaborate story as to why but at the same time the initial reaction is very much this thing of you know why have, why has this happened to us why have we been attacked who is it who's who's got it in for us, you know, what have we done to deserve this? Or what have we done sort of to prompt this kind of, such a kind of outrageous attack kind of out of the blue in a sense i think it's quite interesting though with enterprise i mean you know they were sort of caught off guard in a sense by 9-11 i mean i think the enterprise actually debuted the week after 9-11 didn't it or you know virtually around the same it was very close it was very close and i think that did change everything i mean you know in terms of the way that deep space 9 or even voyager you know relate to the idea of terrorism i mean you know, you're right that you have the, the Bajoran resistance, which, you know, they, they do describe in terms of terrorism and terrorists. I mean, Kira talks to Thomas Riker when he's in the, you know, he's joined the Marquis about being a good terrorist and how to, you know, how to function as a terrorist and what that's like. So they do use that word and they they do kind of question the legitimacy of it and so on. But at the same time, I think. Because with the Bajorans, it's this resistance movement. There's a kind of, you, you know, no one is really going to side with the Cardassians against the Bajoran resistance, whether you might question some of the individual actions that they took or whether they went too far here or there or whatever. Their cause is clearly seen as a just one. You know, it was a noble thing to do. They're, they are... I mean, it's not just the Bajorans who see them as heroes, you know, the viewer is, is you know, pretty much encouraged to, to see them in heroic terms with maybe a few sort of, you know, it being deep space and a few grey areas. I mean, I was uh, watching uh, in the last few days the darkness and the light, the Deep Space Nine episode where a Cardassian who's been um, kind of maimed by one of uh, Kira's resistant cells attacks starts going after the people who are involved with it and and killing them one by one and and sort of trying to punish them and and his view is that basically he was a servant he was you know he wasn't in the military he was you know sort of domestic servant in a sense and that he should not have been targeted and Kira's response is I suppose twofold I mean the first thing is that they you know, they weren't really targeting him deliberately. He was kind of collateral damage in the sense they were targeting a, a military commander. But in the end, she she her response is basically, she says, you were all legitimate targets and I don't care what your job was. You, you know, I don't care if you, she says, I don't care if you had, held a phaser in your hands or you ironed shirts for a living. You know, you were all guilty in a sense and you all deserved what you got. And, you know, in some ways that's an understandable position for someone to take who is living under occupation who has been you know brutalized and their world has been has been stolen from them and you know obviously we know about the kind of appalling things that went on in that situation and then again with the Marquis, you know there's I mean it's maybe a bit more of a kind of gray area with the Marquis as to how much we side with them but but certainly there's a lot of kind of heroism around the Marquis. there's a lot of kind of nobility around them I mean by the time you get to Voyager and half the crew are you, you know kind of Coming from that background, it's very much something that you, you know that it may have been a it was a sort of difference of opinion about what was the right way to deal with this treaty and so on. But you know they were doing what they felt was right. They were it was very much a means to an end. You know they weren't killing people for the sake of it. They weren't killing people you know because they felt they deserved to die. They were very much in the spirit of the guy in the high ground. I suppose they were trying to uh, increase their negotiating power. They were trying to reverse this treaty that had been signed. They had quite clear political goals that were kind of not just understandable, but actually quite sympathetic in a sense. You know, that the, the audience would, and indeed often the characters would have quite a lot of sympathy with them, even if they, um, you know, didn't agree with the means that they were going about to do those things. I mean, you know, Cassidy Yates being a Marquis associate, you know, there's no kind of, there's no moral judgment on her for being involved with that. It's presented as, you know, she's really, she's doing what she thinks is the right thing. And she has every reason for thinking that. But at the same time, it's a kind of complex political situation. And, you know, it's, it's illegal, she has to go to prison and so on. But... You know, very different, of course, by the time Enterprise comes around and is completely blindsided by 9-11 happening literally just as they're debuting. You know, the world did change, I think, and certainly our attitudes towards terrorism changed. And, you you know, they couldn't have done those stories in Deep Space Nine after 9-11, I don't think, in the same ways. You know, the the meaning of those words and our kind of um, associations and expectations were so different that, you know, a character like Kira, I don't know that that would have been possible then.
0: I think what changed was the fact that the idea of that you've just talked about, about them having a cause, and and Kira saying to those Cardassians, "Well, you know, you all were guilty. You all doesn't matter who you are. You all deserve this." That analogy being applied to Western civilization, off the back of a plane being driven into a into a building full of workers, full of innocent people, it's very hard to get behind that sentiment if you look at it from the the viewpoint of Al Qaeda or these other terrorist organisations, because the the simple fact is, what have we done as a society, as a civilization, to warrant innocent people dying? They they don't have a recognisable cause in the same way that a, a, an occupied world would would have from our perspective. But if you go back, this is where going back in history, into the history books, helps because you know a lot of people don't understand the simple, you know. The trajectory of something like Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda, you know, Osama bin Laden was was Western educated. He was funded when he was when he was in the Mujahideen to fight the Soviet Union. He was given the arms, effectively, by the United States, which he then used on the United States. In many respects, there are there is a clear trajectory. From somebody who you know, in many respects, was a, was a sympathiser with forces trying to defeat you know the enemy in the inverted commas in the Cold War, who then turned, who then turned his his entire ideology ideology changed. So there's a, there's a lot of things that in his, in the history of you know, some of these terrorists, it doesn't make what they did right, absolutely not, of course, and I'm not for one second justifying that, but at the same time, the reasons behind why they did what they did in 9-11, and, and the reasons behind for instance what the Zindi do are very different if you flip them on the other on the other side, you know, and, and during Enterprise Season 3 there is an attempt to humanise some of the Zindi, to sort of they 're as much the victims of the sphere builders and the temporal cold war as as, as everybody else, but there is there 's still no getting away from the fact that people sent out that probe and killed eight million people and there 's no getting away from that simple fact so there is i think what nine eleven taught Star Trek and taught the world in general is that there is no easy answer to this that If you look at it from different sides, there are going to be reasons on each one, but the op the other side can 't fathom you know we can 't as a Western society fathom why that man would want to go into manchester arena and blow up 20 young girls you know we we can't fathom his rational he's ra- rational he's reason behind that what what could they possibly have done to warrant that and that's that's what i think star trek has tried to reflect in the last few years
1: and there is an element you know actually in all these stories of kind of questioning the sanity of the people who are perpetrating these crimes i mean you know even in the high ground where as I say, the terrorist seems quite rational. He seems to have quite a clear strategy. He's got a plan. He, you know, he lays out exactly what he's trying to do. There still are conversations about, you know, Picard says, well, these people may not be rational. We may not be able to deal with them rationally. He has an argument with Beverly about whether the guy is mad or not. And, you know, he says it in a kind of dismissive way, you know, kind of he's mad. He doesn't necessarily literally mean he's mentally ill. But there is a kind of debate about how much there is a kind of, a madness involved in it. And certainly in Enterprise, I mean, it's interesting, you, you know, you say that the the Zindi attack and the whole arc of season three, obviously that's very inflected by 9 11 and the war on terror and so on. But they do come to sort of give this explanation, which sort of does make rational sense. Uh, I mean, whether you agree morally with the decisions that they've taken and so on, there is a kind of logic to it. But then at the same time, they also bring in this other episode, Chosen Realm, where they also deal with terrorism, they deal with suicide bombing, they deal with very, you know, contemporary issues around terrorism, but in a very different way, in a much less rational way, because these are religious fanatics, and they're kind of dealing with religious extremism and fanaticism. And in a kind of very sort of traditional Gene Roddenberry sort of Star Trek way, in a sense, this is an episode that is very anti-religion, in a sense. I mean, I don't mean it's anti-all religion, but, but you know, the kind of conclusion of it is very much these people's faith is is sort of ludicrous. These people's faith has driven them to commit these extreme crimes. They can't be reasoned with, they won't listen to sense they're anti-science which by implication they're sort of anti-star trek in a sense because star trek is all about science and they're very much more they they remind me uh in some ways most of you know these days we sort of moved on from dealing with al-qaeda to dealing with isis and there's an element of that kind of um i think with isis this you know because we hear not only about the unspeakable crimes that they commit and the kind of you know executions and all these terrible things but also the destruction of ancient sites the destruction of monuments of art of culture of all these sort of things and, and these people very much have the same kind of slightly philistine attitude their their hatred of science they delete all of the files enterprise has been gathering on the spheres which we know they need to complete their mission so there's this kind of sort of rabid insane religious fanaticism about them which is kind of is is not it's not about a means to an end. it's literally like well, this this person deserves to die, you know they say they've desecrated a sphere they've they've in some sort of mystical religious sense they're they're casting judgment on people and, and punishing them and in all those ways, that episode feels very much you know tied into the kind of you know, talking about, we we keep going back to this idea, of what do the terrorists want? What do the terrorists believe? What are their feelings about the victims and so on? This is very much the kind of modern version of terrorism in a sense that as much as, yes, you can to some extent contextualise uh, events like 9-11 in terms of, you know, American, Anglo-American foreign policy in the years leading up to it. Yes, you know, obviously a lot of people... You would say, you know, as, as long as we're sending drones in that are killing people in certain countries, they're helping to radicalise other people. There is all that element to it, but at the same time, there are also people who seem to have absorbed a kind of toxic ideology that is, you know, almost kind of nihilistic. And certainly with these people, we see very much this kind of religious fanaticism and the the impossibility of really dealing with that in any kind of rational way. Which, Which
0: is really, yeah, as you say, it's really... Topical in many respects, because, you know, uh, the the modern idea of the modern terrorist of ISIS is very much in their eyes built on this idea of religious fanaticism, of using the Koran and using Islam as their justification for this, you know, kind of this holy war against, you know, the, the Western society and things like that. When the reality is, you know, as as many, you know, millions of Muslim people will tell you, and if you only and most people who actually you know read up on this and Islam and the Quran and educate themselves know that it's probably the most peace loving, you know, religion in the world <laughs> of all of them. It it really doesn't espouse anything like this. So it is that whole idea of taking something, twisting it for your own ends, whatever end that may be, and then you know going out there and doing these unspeakable crimes in the guise of something else. And it, it and again it goes back to the the complete you know, lack of understanding as to, as, to, as to why why this would be done. But the, 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 the other element that Star Trek has touched on, and we've we mentioned this before, but most recently in Star Trek Into Darkness, the second J.J. Abrams movie, they touched on the response. And I think that film is very much a response to the, the growing... I mean, it, obviously it came out in the, you know, during the Obama administration, but it kind of almost presaged the Trump administration and how they've been dealing with Syria Lately, and in, in Admiral Marcus is a, is a clear example of the hawkish, right wing, Republican, hardline government who consider missiles and bombing to be the the answer to terrorist attacks. Obviously, you know he's corrupt. He's involved with with you know, Section Thirty One and Khan and all this kind of thing. But it's in- interesting watching that film and seeing that he's he's effectively a Section Thirty One agent under the guise of be, trying to being a staff staffly admiral with his massive you know gunship, the Vengeance. And it's it's interesting that they that film very much tries to sort of position him as a almost like an internal renegade, almost as somebody who doesn't espouse the, the ideals of the Federation. And he is kind of like he, you know, he's he's not he's not a he's not a fugitive, he's not a renegade, but he's operating under a very different set of principles. So it kind of, in a way, vindicates Starfleet's involvement in this. But to me, it's the, still the same idea. It's still exploring the same idea that he's. His initial response to Kirk is go to the go to that planet, bomb it, and that will be the solution. And that is something that I don't think we'd seen quite as directly in Star Trek before.
1: Mm. And there is that whole debate. I mean, Scotty basically resigns, doesn't he? Because he's not happy uh, using these weapons that they, they. He's not even allowed to open them. He doesn't even know what they are. There's this kind of you know militarized element to it that is is kind of seen as quite distasteful in that exactly as you said that sort of hawkish way i mean i find it surprising i'm not a big fan of the jj films i i I like beyond but the other two i could could really do without and especially the kind (laughs) of uh loud brash you know I call them Star Trek troopers. It's that kind of very militarised, very kind of uh, (laughs) in-your-face, sort of action-heavy approach that they have, which to me doesn't really feel very Star Trek. But at the same time, Into Darkness, uh, which I don't like as a film, politically I feel like I'm more sympathetic to it than I am to the treatment of the same issues in Enterprise, bizarrely. And I know that the season three of Enterprise, that whole Zindi arc, it polarised people. You know, a lot of people were very uncomfortable with it, particularly in the sort of early period before they started working towards resolution. I mean, um, you know, I, I think maybe we talked about this in our first episode that uh, John Billingsley, for example, who plays Dr. Flox, he was very uncomfortable with some of the directions they were going in with exactly in that kind of context of you mentioned 24, kind of, you know, stories like 24 that seemed to defend some of the actions of the bush administration in terms of torture and you know they called it advanced uh enhanced interrogation techniques seem to be very much on board with those kind of things that traditionally you would probably expect star trek as a kind of liberal uh kind of you know fairly left-wing program to be to to you know to take quite a strong line against and i, I wonder if part of it though is that you know, as I said before, they were really caught off guard by nine eleven, and and obviously, you know, nine eleven was a deeply dramatic sort of his, global historical event, and and something that people struggle to process with and to know, you, you know, what to make of and, and how to respond to. And I mean, it's interesting. It you, you know, it really took them on enterprise quite some time to engage with it directly. I mean, there was a kind of a hint of it at the end of the first season, um, in the episode Shockwave, there's a kind of, there's a, a very strong visual echo of nine eleven. the last shot of that episode, you know, their archer is in this planet in the future that's well, he's in Earth, I think, and the future that has been sort of devastated, and, and the iconography of it is very reminiscent of the, of the Twin Towers, of those kind of twisted girders uh, reaching up to the sky. Um, so they kind of touch on it there, and also in that episode there's a kind of at the beginning there's this what's what's taken to be an accident in which three thousand people are killed. And again, maybe there's this sort of slight sort of subtle connection there somehow that this, this act which does turn out to have been deliberate and is a kind of, you know, a deliberate act that's killed these people. Um has, has killed a sort of comparable number of people and there's a comparable kind of shock around it. But but really it takes them two years to head on deal with this massive issue, this massive event that's affected the world in this very profound way. And I suppose probably they felt that Star Trek had this responsibility. I mean, in the 1960s, they were dealing with contemporary issues around Vietnam and so on. You know, Star Trek has always supposedly been able to, you know, take things, you know, rip from the headlines stories and and find a way of processing that. But for whatever reason, with Enterprise, it, it took them quite a while to work out how to do that. I mean, compared to, for example, The West Wing, which literally had a, a special episode out within two weeks of nine eleven, They shot a whole you know, as an episode outside of continuity. So it basically doesn't actually fit anywhere in the storyline because it didn't fit, you know, with the episode that had been broadcast before or the, or the one afterwards, which had already been scripted. But they wrote this kind of little um sort of like a TV play, I suppose, kind of looking at some of the issues, some of the questions, you know, and arguably it's probably not the best episode of The West Wing. But it, but it was certainly well-intentioned and it certainly came out of this idea of this monumental thing has happened, we need to say something about it, we can't just carry on as normal and sort of pretend it hasn't taken place. And especially writing these kind of fictional narratives, I mean, you know, the the real American presidency and the American country and the world had been sort of plunged into this situation. And in a way, when you've got a fictitious American presidency going on as normal or dealing with totally unrelated issues, it it maybe feels kind of strange that, that the the fiction can't relate to that. I mean, I remember there was a whole issue about uh, in comic books. What you know, why was um, why wasn't Superman there on nine eleven to save the day? You know, how do we how do you sort of explain that in the context of that world? And is it really possible to just pretend that something so momentous never happened? Because at a certain point, it is part of human history, and it's it's got to be reflected in in fiction that sort of seemingly takes place in the real world. This whole topic, I
0: think, just
1: is so expansive. I think it's it's
0: something that Star Trek is going to be wrestling with, you know, for a long time to come, especially as, you know, the 21st century, the idea of what terrorism is develops and changes. And I, I, the sad thing is I don't think it's going to go away. And I think, you know, events like Manchester prove increasingly that these issues are so far away from being resolved and so far away from having any kind of understanding on both sides that we're going to get this happen and it's be, almost become a generational thing. It's almost become something that, for a, an entire legion of, of, and often quite young radicalised people, is a way of life, is a a route to success, in inverted commas, you know, if if you look at, you know, certainly ISIS and the, and the, the way they recruit and the radicalization there, and It's a terrifying uncertainty, really, that I think Star Trek is gonna continue reflecting in many of its stories. You know, and we you know, we saw a little bit of the idea, not 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 in the same way as into darkness, but in beyond it was that idea of of a complete force taking, you know, the enterprise by surprise. And it was a very different kind of thing. It wasn't terrorism per se, but it's still that playing with that idea of, of a you know, something completely knocking you for six. And then, you know, the question is, is it, is it is it going to play a part in Discovery, you know, later this year? Are we going to see these kind of fears and these kind of, you know, ideas reflected in this new series?
1: Well, absolutely. I suppose it's true with Beyond. You do get a sense, you know... Partly that it the attack sort of comes out of the blue, but also the fact that it involves, you know, many, many small... It's not one big ship because it's this swarm of little ships. There is... I mean, I know they're not... It's not really a suicide attack, but there's a kind of element of it that ties into that idea because they are literally... You know, it sort of seems like a kind of mass kamikaze attack in a sense, doesn't it? The way it's ripping through the ship and so on. And it's very much, you know, these individuals playing their small part and, and causing mayhem and destruction. It's not like a, a general on the battlefield or kind of a ship going into battle with another ship. It is more sort of on the level of the individual suicide bomber who's been radicalised or who's been, you, you know, persuaded to to play their part in this kind of scheme and to and to attack people in that way. And certainly, I mean, who knows how this may or may not play out in Discovery, but, you know, one of the, the big questions, I suppose, is... is that's hard to answer and that really we, you know, we keep talking about what what do the terrorists want or what the terrorists thinking or, you know, what do they want us to do or what do we want to make them think that we're going to do or whatever. You know, the other thing is to try to understand this process of radicalisation. I mean, how does it happen? Because, you know, uh, with this boy who, or this man who carried out the attack in Manchester, you know, we've seen, uh, as is often the case, people who went to school with him saying, oh, he seemed like a normal kid, you know, he didn't seem particularly extreme. And there's a sort of process that happens where, you know, it's like grooming in a sense, isn't it? It is a kind of grooming process in a sense. It's a kind of, almost a kind of brainwashing. I mean, you know, in our second episode, we were talking about the Manchurian candidate. It's not quite on that level of, of, you know, literally roboticizing someone, but there is an element of, you know, there are people who are feeding these ideas who are trying to kind of, indoctrinate uh, people into this kind of ideology and into these uh, these views about what isn't, isn't acceptable and what, you, you know, kind of a moral code that is so alien to, you know, 99% of, of kind of ordinary people around the world, in a sense. But it is this kind of process. And I mean, one of the things, obviously, that I suppose a future Star Trek could try and deal with is we saw, obviously, in Deep Space Nine, the kind of undercover marquee. You know, we saw Eddington working for the Marquis. We saw Cass- Cassidy Yates, you know, helping the Marquis. But that's sort of one thing, because we can understand why they would do that. You know, we can understand why they would feel sympathy for the marquee. We can understand why they would feel morally that that was the right thing to do. You know, this process of kind of radicalization from someone who's grown up in, you know, Western culture, someone who's, you know, who's born and bred in Britain, essentially and yet can be kind of corrupted mentally, morally, in that kind of way is, you know, is a very complex and fascinating topic. And, you know, obviously that's something that they could kind of look at in future Star Trek is is something about that kind of process of you know, how do you, how do you lose someone like that? Do you know what I mean? How do you lose them as as part of your kind of common humanity that they go, you know, not just to a kind of political betrayal or a kind of, it's not just to betray your country, it's to betray your whole kind of, the whole sort of assumptions about what we have about what it means to live as human beings. And, you know, what kind of acceptable behaviour is, you know, to the extent that, you know, with this attack in the last week. I mean, however much you might try to understand the, you know, in different situations, different terrorists. I mean, like, I find it hard to comprehend someone who wants to kill people like you and me. But I, but there is something, I think, even worse about someone who wants to kill small children and thinks that that's acceptable because, and that they would choose them as the, you, you know, because they do have a choice about who they're targeting. That That is kind of, it, it, because it suggests that there's no, I suppose if you were seeing it as kind of a means to an end, if you were seeing it maybe as as Kira does in Deep Space Nine to a certain extent of, well, I had to do awful things because, you know, the cause was just and I had a reason for doing it and, you know, I felt bad about it, but, you know, whatever, or, or like the guy in the high ground, then you would choose, you, you know, you would make decisions uh, to try to, either to cause the least harm or, or at least you would choose your targets in some ways. You, you would have some view of... of What a legitimate target is, you know. Kira says the guy who folds the shirts for a living is still a legitimate target because he's working for the Cardassian. Okay, that's one thing. But you know, she wouldn't be going and targeting a school full of Cardassian children. You you know, there are kind of there are boundaries, and I suppose you know the other thing that's maybe difficult about these issues is obviously you know terrorism is is horrific and awful, and you, you know I don't want to get into trying to defend any of these people in the real world or in star trek or, or or any of it in a sense but at the same time you know people are making decisions they are making choices and in a sense you know we can't really ignore those facts of it we can't really ignore that people are choosing to kind of cross a line that that other people wouldn't i mean in, even in the enterprise episode in chosen realm that we were talking about uh, there's this point where the the fanatical leader is is trying to say to archer look we're very much the same you know you've crossed your own moral boundaries you've done things that you didn't think you would ever do and then he reveals he actually killed a a child in order to protect a kind of military operation and archer obviously is is horrified and you know we talked earlier about that episode uh in a previous episode we discussed the episode hatchery where where there's a kind of discussion about the ethics of of killing children in war. And, and even in the high ground, it comes up because they talk about this terrorist group has, has bombed a bus full of children. And they have this sort of discussion about, well, they said they didn't mean to kill the children. It was, you know, they thought that they were police or something and it was an accident. But, you you know, and, and the woman who's the policewoman in that story is sort of saying, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter. What they did was awful. I don't care whether they meant to or not. On the other hand, you know, not to defend someone who who kills a load of children by accident, but it is different from someone who does it deliberately and I suppose really that's all you know with all these things that we've been talking about it's the kind of thing I keep coming back to is this idea I think we need to try to avoid the kind of simplifying narratives try to avoid the kind of knee-jerk responses whether you know on the negative side or even on the positive side and just try to recognize I suppose the complexity and the the difficult side of these things and these are very upsetting you know heartbreaking things that have happened but there are also things not to sort of shy away from and not to try and comfort ourselves by just trotting out you know certain phrases that we've heard everyone say a million times without really thinking about them and and you know i don't know try to try to have a sort of honest response um to these things and you know if something appalling and awful happens you know try to accept that and acknowledge that and but also kind of t- take an interest in it, try to, try to understand it. Well, maybe it can't be understood in those kind of ways, but, you know, at least try to have an open mind in terms of, you know, how we respond, what our responsibilities are, not just kind of buy into this sort of, you know, sort of dogma, well-meaning as it might be.
0: Well, well, I think as well, off the back of that, the key thing to remember is, and you mentioned this just a minute ago, the people who do this, it, it, it is an individual decision or it's a choice of individual decisions based on a group a collective group with an agenda or with whatever it's not representative of us versus them it's not the idea that these people represent a a completely different way of life or represent a completely different race or represent a complete they don't these people that man who blew himself up chose to do that he didn't do that in the name of the entire face of islam he didn't do that in the name of, of every Muslim person on the planet, and unfortunately, there are people who buy into the rhetoric of that and who, who fear, who are, who are bred to fear you know and you know if, if, there is, if, if there is a goal that they might want, part of it could well be that people do buy into that fear, and, it, and it, like you said, it is difficult to prescribe one specific reason, and it, it should be avoided, but there is that idea that if, if, we, if we choose to think in those terms, then we're not really going to get anywhere, we're not really going to progress it should always be remembered i think that these people choose and whatever whatever it is whether it's the real world whether it's all these a lot of these characters in star trek they make these choices they choose to do these things themselves and ultimately the accountability is on them and on their you know their actions their morality and all of these different things and i think if star trek keeps keeps shining a light on these stories hopefully as you know as it continues whether it's in the movies or whether it's you know on tv i think in its own way, it will help. It will help us try and figure out this what is probably the biggest problem
1: of this century. Because, as you say, it's you know, it's not unfortunately something that it looks like it's going to go away anytime soon. You know, it is going to be with us this situation, this problem, for some time. And I guess that that is one of the things that Star Trek can do. It can sort of shine a light on things, often by taking them in an allegorical way, or, or you know, looking at them slightly obliquely. It can kind of, you know, give us new perspectives on things and with something as emotive and difficult to deal with and difficult to comprehend as as terrorism i think that can only you know be helpful to have new perspectives new stories new ways of of looking at that issue and and questioning it and and thinking about it absolutely
0: absolutely well i mean it's it's been it's been an enlightening discussion a very topical and difficult discussion really and you know I'm, i i think i speak on behalf of duncan that you know, my heart goes out to all those people who lost their lives and their families, mm. and it's it's desperately sad, and I think it's, it's, it's a good discussion to have, though, and, and as, as you say, it's great that we've got Star Trek there to actually try and help us work through this a little bit in these really difficult times. So um, let's hope this is a discussion that, you know, people may take, if they've been affected by this, may take some solace in. So uh, unfortunately, this sad topic isn't the only thing, though, that has been going on this week on the network. So here's a little look at what else has been happening this week on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, the ready room. It's interesting how they're doing the casting, but I think it would be nice to actually have two ships involved because one thing that I feel Star Trek has long suffered from, even with Deep Space Nine, which did try to break out of it a bit, is that small world syndrome. Standard orbit. And Jim Curry, as they're fighting, he's like singing along. He's like,
1: As he's fighting, he's singing
0: along as he's fighting Matthew Broderick. And uh, man, it's just, just so good. Like to me, that's like when I think of Star Trek and pop culture, like that is the one, that's the first scene that I think of in, in the cable guy there. The orb.
1: This is another thing that we're, we're seeing all over the world. But this whole
0: idea that just because something is hard, we should avoid it. But that is absolutely
1: untrue. I mean, just look at your life, look at my life, i look at anybody's life, and the, the things where people have learned the most have been the hard things.
0: To the journey! <laughs> Wait, is, you're saying it's like matter and antimatter when they uh, interact? They it's like costume or non costume. So cost, costumes and non-costumes annihilate each other <laughs> yes. in Voyager. that is how the universe is going to ultimately be destroyed due to the interaction of naked people and people wearing (laughs) clothes and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button in apple podcasts on iphone ipad Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published and please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone and in most third-party apps and you can stream and download the mp3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com trek.fm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact you can also find the network on twitter at trek fm and on facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm you can find duncan and i on the babel conference as well and you can find us both on twitter duncan at barrett's books and myself tony at black hole media and you can also find me hosting my own podcast the Xcast and x files podcast if you type that into twitter and facebook So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture and how Star Trek relates to it.